Welcome to worship at Salem Alliance Church. Let's join Steve Fowler, lead pastor, as he begins. Went to a little bit of a panic yesterday at Costco, which uh, is easy to do when you're getting in the checkout line and you look at all the stuff that's in your cart that's going to add up so quickly, but it wasn't what was in my cart that scared me. It was what I saw. There was this end cap that was full of wrapping paper, and I had that flash of a thought that was... Uh, Oh my goodness, they're already selling stuff for Christmas. Uh, and it's March, and I'm just getting used to the idea that, that we're, in, we're, we're in March. And, uh, but, you know, it was, it was not Christmas wrapping paper. It was just the kind of wrapping paper you used to wrap a, a birthday present or something like that. So I took a deep breath. And, and uh, if you can go back in time to, to November or October, you, you know that, uh, that people get ready for Christmas very early. Uh, it seems like it's earlier and earlier that when you walk into a store and there's the decorations and there's the lights that you're supposed to hang on your house and, and there's a lot of good things about getting ready for Christmas, uh, about being with family and, and, and giving good gifts and receiving gifts and there's a lot of unhealthy things we get involved in and getting, getting ready uh, for Christmas as well. But there's a lot of preparation, baking and traveling and decorating and buying and, and receiving and, and uh, you know the list, you, you know all the, the ways that we ready ourselves uh, for Christmas. And, and it, being ready for uh, and celebrating the birth of Christ is a good thing. And it, because Christmas is a high point on the Christian calendar. But uh, the other high point, one of the other high points in the Christian calendar is Easter. And think about how much preparation and how much readiness we go through to, to get ready for Christmas. And as I look at my own life, uh, how much little preparation there can be in, in celebrating Resurrection Sunday. Celebrating Holy Week. This week that we celebrate in which Christ uh, lays his life down and goes to the cross. He's crucified uh, and pays our sin penalty. And then three days later, he conquers death and walks out of the tomb. This, what we call passion, we got passion for you uh, at Easter. And uh, it's, it's, an, it's a good thing for us to prepare ourselves for this season. And uh, we're blessed to have a great staff. One of our staff members, uh, Rebecca Anderson, Director of Prayer Ministries, has put together a, a Lent devotional to sort of help us prepare uh, for Holy Week and for Resurrection Sunday. And you'll find one of these in the pew rack in, in front of you. Uh, you're, you're welcome to take one of these or, or take a couple if there's enough. There's some out in the lobby as well. Uh, that you could use as a way to sort of prepare yourself uh, for uh, Holy Week, for Passion Week. And uh, it's, it's really what they are, 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 are scriptures that have been put to prayers that, that are really put in first person from Christ to you that you can respond to and just uh, prepare your soul for, for Holy Week. And, uh, you know, Lent is, is a, a, well, it began in the early church. Lent was a two to three day fast that in the early church the early church would, would go through to prepare for Resurrection Sunday, and then it went from two or three days to two or three weeks to now what is, is called the Lenten fast. It uh, is 40 days. Uh, it begins this next Wednesday, and will go all the way through Thursday before Good Friday. And, um, and sometimes a Lent season can be described as a season where you give something up. Um, and, and that may be the case, um, or, or maybe it could be a season as you prepare your heart for uh, Holy Week, uh, a time to add something to uh, your spiritual routine. Uh, maybe a, a time for you to take a devotion like this and, and add the discipline of, of just preparing your heart for the, the Lenten season. And there are also some bookmarks. Uh, Christina Z, one of our, our, 
our children's pastors has put together a bookmark with some activities that you can take your family through as well as you, uh, as you uh, kind of get ready for, for Holy Week. And we want to be a people who are prepared uh, to, to be prepared for, to embrace Holy Week and to enter in to the season when Christ lays down his life for us and prepared to rejoice in the life that we have because Christ's conquering of the grave is, uh, is, is a foreshadowing of, of us, us walking out of our graves and being with Christ forever and ever. So I want to encourage you to take some time to prepare for Holy Week in this, this uh, Easter season. And even right now, I invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes and, and just pray a prayer, uh, a prayer where you just ask God, your Father in heaven, ask him to prepare you for this, this next Easter season. Maybe it's preparing a friend as well with you. A friend who doesn't know Christ. What, what might the Holy Spirit want to do in you this Easter season? Just ask him to prepare you. Lord Jesus, we, we want to be a people who are alert, who are on our toes spiritually, always ready for you to do another work in us. We want our lives to be set apart to you. And Lord, in this, uh, in this season leading up to Easter, I just ask and pray that you would soften our hearts, that you would... You would do a work in us, individually and as a church, that we be a a ready church for what you have for us. We pray in this this Easter season that's coming up that uh, you would open our eyes to the tremendous, tremendous gift that you've given to us, Father, and your Son, and to the hope that is ours in Christ. As we've sung already today, Lord, the freedom that we have Once we were slaves to sin, but now we have been set free, freedom from and freedom to righteousness. Once we were condemned people, but now, Lord, we're alive. Lord, today as we we look to your word, I ask and pray, Lord, you would give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying, that we be a people who are ready to hear the things you'd speak to us today, in this moment. Lord, we... We can tune out your voice so easily by thinking about what's next today and, or what happened last week. May our ears be tuned to what your spirit is saying to us. And Lord, would you fill me with your spirit? Fill me. Speak your words through me today, Lord. Anoint this message for the glory of your name. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. So, here's my question to lead with today. Did OJ do it? <laughs> Did OJ do it? I mean, that was the question back in 1994 that people were asking even after, even after the, 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 the court acquitted him of this double homicide, <clears throat> this brutal murder of OJ Simpson's ex-wife, uh, Nicole Brown Simpson, and a young man, a friend of hers named Ron Goldman. 
did O.J. do it? I mean, people were all over the map. There was quite a, quite a bit of stir in America whether or not he was guilty. Uh, Fred Goldman, the father of Ron Goldman, uh, had, there was no doubt in his heart that his son, Ron, was killed by O.J. Simpson. He was, he was convinced. In fact, he wrote a book uh, not too long after this, this trial uh, a, a book called His Name is Ron, and it's, a, and it's subtitled then Our Search for Justice. Uh, and Fred Goldman is convinced that O.J. Simpson killed his son. And in his book, he tells the story of the trial from his angle. He gives his perspective. He, he calls the, the three lawyers that defended Simpson, he calls them the scheme team. Uh, he, he refers to them as the most conniving and deceitful attorneys you'll ever meet. In the book, remember, the, remember Johnny Cochran, one of the lawyers? In the book, he, he calls him time and time again Johnny Cockroach. Uh, and he never refers to O.J. Simpson by his name. He merely refers to him as the killer. Never uses O.J.'s name, just refers to him as the killer. He is convinced that O.J. killed his son. In fact, he confesses that in his book, he, he confesses that he has a fantasy. He plays this out as he in, mentally lingers at the crime scene and, and remembers the loss of his son. He has this fantasy, and the fantasy is this. He's got a gun. He's got a gun, and he walks up to O.J. Simpson. It's just him and O.J. They're alone, and he puts the gun to O.J.'s chest, and he says to, to O.J. Simpson, you better tell me the truth or I'm going to pull the trigger. I've got a, one question to ask you. And the question is this, did you kill my son, Ron? And in his fantasy, O.J. Simpson responds by saying, yes, I, I killed your son. And then Fred Goldman says to O.J., I lied, and he pulls the trigger. He is consumed with paying back this, this killer that he's convinced killed his son. He fantasizes mentally. He, he lingers at the crime scene. And a reporter was interviewing him and asked him the question, Mr. Goldman, do you think you'll ever heal? I mean, do you think you'll ever heal? Because he has experienced traumatic loss, significant loss. And Goldman responds, um, I don't think I can ever heal. I don't think you ever heal from something like that. And it is true. It is a very difficult thing to heal from the loss of a loved one. And you do never forget. Yet I believe it's the wrong question that the reporter is asking Goldman. The question is, do you think you'll ever heal? Really, I think the question is, do you want to heal? Do you want to get well? It may seem like an absurd question, but sometimes we experience significant loss in our life. Sometimes we, we experience disappointment. Sometimes we make decisions that, that, that bring guilt and we get stuck in a place. Uh, we get laid out flat on our back. It's so overwhelming and, and we need to answer the question, do we want to get well? And that would be a, an appropriate question to ask Fred Goldman. In fact, that's a question we're looking at that Jesus asks a paralytic in John chapter 5. You can turn to John chapter 5 in your Bibles if you like. And as you're going there, sometimes our souls, uh, our, our life experience encounters such significant pain, such horrible hurt that, that it, it, it injures our soul. And it can, it can seem like a, just a small thing or it can be a, a big thing. And we get stuck. It lays us out. 
We have a hard time moving forward in our spiritual journey. It could be something is that like, well, you, it's the dad you grew up with. The, the dad, the father you had that was harsh, he, who spoke so sternly to you, who just didn't seem kind, and, and treated your mom poorly. And, and this verbal abuse just came at you day after day, and you just sort of hid and just tried to stay out of harm's way. And as you saw mom take the shots, you, you, it, just, it just crushed your soul. In fact, the verbal abuse led to physical abuse. And as you looked at other families, you thought to yourself, I wish I had that dad. I wish he was my father. And in your journey in life, this, this father wound sort of gets you stuck in life, and you're stuck in the disappointment. The hurt of a father has laid you out. And you're stuck. Or, or maybe it was something as simple as a friend who walked up to you and said something to you, disagreed with you, and, and, and said it in such a way that you were offended. You couldn't believe they would say that to you. you you're shocked and you're hurt. They've offended you. And it may have been something that happened last week or it may have been something that happened years ago and you remember the offense. In fact, it's broken the relationship and bitterness has taken root. And, you, and the way you know you're stuck there is you, you start replaying the conversations. And if I had only said this, and the next time I see her, I'm going to say that. And you're stuck. You're stuck in bitterness. Or maybe it wasn't something that someone said to your face. Maybe it's something that someone said to your friends. And what you shared in confidence is now public knowledge. And you're stuck in the anger of that and the hurt of that. Sometimes the injuries to, our, to, our, to our, our soul are not necessarily things that come from the outside. Sometimes it's the choices that we make in life that, that we look back on and we, we live with regret. Uh, we live with the guilt of a decision we made. Maybe you're here today and a long time ago, maybe not so long ago, you had an abortion. And if you were to do it all over again, you wouldn't have, but you did. And, and that guilt just gnaws at you. It just gnaws at you. you. You come to church and you hear songs being sung about a God who loves you, a God who cares about you, yet you have that nagging thought in the back of your mind, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, but, but, but if you knew what I've done, you wouldn't say that about me. That, that, that guilt is like a thousand pounds on your back and it just gets you stuck. It, it lays you flat on your back. You can barely move forward. Because the guilt is just so heavy, you're stuck. Or maybe you're here today and you're not knee deep, you're not waist deep, you're chest deep and sinking in pornography. You've been looking at stuff you know you shouldn't be looking at. Go on the website you shouldn't go to. And you're there, and, you, and you, the sickness of it is shrinking your soul, and you know it. You know it, and you say to yourself, this is the last time. I'm not doing it again. I'm, I'm, I'm done with it. And you, you just make all these personal promises to yourself. You, you make all these vows, and, 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 and you're good for a week, but then you find yourself, you're, you're right back there again, and again, and again. And you're wondering, how am I ever going to get free from this? And you're stuck in the shame. You're stuck in the shame of it. What do you do when you're stuck in disappointment? 
or you're stuck in bitterness, perhaps stuck in anger, perhaps stuck with this heaviness of guilt, maybe stuck in shame. How do you, how do you find healing? How, how, do you, how do you enter into a, a journey of, of healing? How can I get well? We're gonna be looking at the story in John chapter five, which Jesus will talk to a paralytic, a guy who physically has been laid out flat on his back for 38 years. Physically, he is stuck. He's on a mat, a mat that has carried him for 38 years. And in this story, we're gonna see a healing take place in which a mat that has carried him for 38 years is gonna be picked up and he's gonna walk from a place of being stuck, paralyzed, flat on his back to a journey of healing where he's gonna carry his mat and he's free and he's healed. And we're gonna answer that question, how can I get well? Grab your Bibles, turn to John chapter five. If you happen, haven't, stand with me as I read the text today. And even as we begin to do, do this, let me just give you a little bit of instruction here because if you're using a pew Bible and you're at page 1054, some Bibles, like the one in our, in our pew racks, um, uh, you, you'll see there's a verse one, verse two, verse three, and at the end of verse three, it goes to verse five. And you may be thinking we bought some Bibles on discount at a, some uh, <laughs> store somewhere. Uh, so, some translations, all, all verse four is there. Here, here's what's going on. Uh, at the bottom of the page in the Pew Bibles, uh, verse four is in, in italics, and the reason it's there is because it's in the earliest manuscripts, verse four was not there. Uh, it, it appears it was added uh, some decades after the, the best manuscripts uh, that we have on record uh, were written. It was added likely because of verse seven, which talks about some waters being stirred. And it sort of gives some background as to uh, what the common thought was about these stirred waters. It, it fits perfectly in the story, so some Bibles will have that, that verse in there. This one in our pew Bibles has it at the bottom. So as I read from the pew Bible, uh, if you've got using one of those, we'll just drop down the bottom of the page and then jump back up to verse five. I just wanted you to give, it, give you a heads up on that. John chapter five, verse one. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the sheep gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. From time, to not, from time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease he had. Verse five. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. 
Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. This is God's holy word. You may be seated. So do you want to get well? Are you in a place where you're stuck? This man was stuck physically. But maybe you're stuck in something today and you're wondering, will this ever change? Will I ever be healed? This man paralyzed for 38 years. 38 years flat on his back, not able to move his legs, not able to move his body, has to be carried wherever he goes. And just to sort of help us enter into this man's reality, let's go back in time 38 years. It's 2011. Let's go back to 1973. For some of you in this room, 1973 brings some wonderful memories. For others of you, you weren't even alive in 1973. But 1973 was 38 years ago. If you were going to buy a house in 1973, a brand new house, the average cost of a brand new house was $32,500. Anyone still living in the same house they bought in 1973? A few of you. Yeah, way to go. Congratulations. Feels good, doesn't it? Yeah. Feels very good. That now is the average price of a car, $32,500. Average income in 1973, $12,900. And you're sitting there going, I've got that income, and I'm 38 years behind in, in my earnings, right? That was the average income per year. Here's the average price of gas in 1973, 40 cents a gallon, 40 cents a gallon. You want 10 gallons of gas? Cost you four bucks. Now you want 10 gallons of gas? Cost you 40 bucks, right? It, it is expensive to get gas these days. A brand new car, AMC made a brand new car called a Javelin. It cost $2,900 brand new. Anyone driving a javelin? Uh, you know, a brand new car, $2,900. You can hardly buy a used car for $2,900, a, a good one. Uh, eggs were 45 cents a dozen. In, in, our, in, our, uh, in our world, soldiers were starting to come back from Vietnam. Some of you were in, in Vietnam, and you, you, you started making the journey home. Uh, the World Trade Center's uh, the two towers were, were finished. They were the tallest buildings in the world at that time in 1973. And President Nixon was in office, and he was telling America, I'm not a crook. And the Watergate hearings were starting, and, and some of you remember very well. You watched, watched the news, and you were tracking with Watergate. Now, go back in time, 1973, to a time when things were very different. We have our own political climate. We've got... Soldiers coming back from Vietnam, you know, gas is so cheap. This is like, and that's the year you had the accident. That's the year you were paralyzed, or maybe that was the year you were born paralyzed. You're flat on your back. It's in 1973, and after year one, maybe it's after an accident, after year one, what are you feeling? Maybe pretty depressed about how your life has so dramatically changed. Maybe the depression has led to now anger. Because this, this new reality is one that you just, you can't stand. And 1974 comes, 75 comes. Now it's 1985, and you're still flat on your back. You are paralyzed, you cannot move. 1995 comes, you're still there. It's over 20 years now. 2005 comes, 
And now it's 2011. You have been flat on your back. You have been stuck since 1973. You are paralyzed. And it's been a very, very long time since your feet have ever walked on their own and carried the full weight of your body. This man is flat on his back. He's by a pool. Uh, there's these two pools, uh, the pools of Bethesda. That, 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 that name in Aramaic, it, it, it means house of mercy. And there are these two pools where a great number of people are uh, sick people, lame, uh, blind, handicapped people around these two pools. Uh, they're gathering there, a great number. It, we don't have an exact number. We know it's a lot because this, this same phrase is used uh, when, uh, remember the disciples throw their net on the other side of the boat uh, Jesus tells them to do that, and they catch a great number of fish, so many fish that the nets are starting to break. They have to call in friends. That's the same phrase. This great number of sick people are around these two pools. They're around the two pools because there is this belief, this superstition that, that um, the waters are stirred by angels every now and then. Uh, now, we have no stories of that happening in Scripture. Uh, we, we don't know how often they thought this happened. Uh, we have no healing stories. What we do know, uh, what scholars do know, is that there were was was streams going underneath these two pools, and they dammed these streams up to make the, the pools, to hold the water. And it's likely that every, every so often there was a, a bit of a, a break uh, in, in that uh, damming up, or some air moved through the stream because uh, it was moving water, and it came up into the pool. And uh, the thought was that when the, it, it seemed like the pool was being stirred, that the first one in the water could be healed. And so all these sick people, these, these invalids, the, the handicapped, the blind, were gathered around these waters so they could be the first one in. First one in wins, they get the healing. And here is this man flat on his back, 38 years. He's by the pool of Bethesda. And Jesus walks into this, this hope-starved community and he just observes the massive amount of people who are, in, who are stuck, who are, who are in places of, of desperation. And he learns, he asks some questions about this particular individual that we just read about. He learns of his condition and he walks up to the man and asks him what could be perceived as a very absurd question. Because he's been flat on his back since 1973, right? He's been flat on his back for 38 years and Jesus asks the question, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? It's an important question because not everyone who's sick wants to be healed. Remember Fred Goldman. Maybe the Holy Spirit's asking you today, do you want to get well? The place maybe perhaps you're stuck. Do you really want to get well? This, this man tells a story. See, he has positioned himself by the only hope there is in town, these two pools. Whether it's a reality or if it's just, just a superstition, he's going to get himself as close as he can to, to a possible healing. So he's by the pool, and he says to Jesus, I, I, I just am waiting by these waters, and, and when they're stirred, the first one in is healed, and, and, and he's telling the whole story, and this is his only hope. That's why he's at these pools and Jesus asks him that question, do you want to get well? Why would Jesus ask that question? Maybe he's embraced a victim mindset. Maybe, he's, maybe he doesn't want to get well. Maybe he just would like some FaceTime with, with God because he'd like to tell God off. 
Why'd you let this happen to me? I've been here for 38 years. I've been miserable. I've been suffering. It's not fair, God. Maybe, maybe he'd like to tell God off. I don't think that's why Jesus is asking the question. I think the reason Jesus is asking the question is because he wants to know if hope has died. Has hope died? You have been stuck there for 38 years. Do you believe? Is there still a belief in you? Is there a grain of hope left alive in you that you could be well? And perhaps you're here today and you're stuck. Stuck in disappointment. Stuck in in the bitterness and the anger. Stuck in the guilt. Stuck in the shame. Is hope alive? Do you believe that you can be made well? This man, is, he's, t- he's telling the story. Jesus, when the waters are bubbling up, I mean, he, he, he's not like the, remember that paralytic who's got the four friends who open the roof up and drop this, this man in front of Jesus? He doesn't have that community because when the, when the waters are stirred, he, he has no friends. That, he can't get down there. He's paralyzed. And Jesus says to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And again, as I enter into the story, i got to be thinking, wait a minute, I've been flat on my back since Nixon was president. I've been flat on my back through the horrible music of the 80s. I've been flat on my back for for 38 years. And you're just, remember, this guy doesn't know who this is. He doesn't know, he doesn't recognize this Jesus. Apparently he hadn't heard the stories. He didn't recognize this was Christ. And so picture from his angle, some guy he's never met before walks into a place that he's been flat on his back for 38 years, he's stuck, and this guy says to him, pick up your mat and walk. Apparently, you didn't listen to my story. what's What's he doing? What's Jesus doing? What Jesus is doing is Jesus is asking him to take a very scary first step. August 1st, 2005 was my, my first day of work at St. Alliance. Um, John Stumbo uh, was lead pastor at the time, and, and John invited uh, me, along with his son Drew and my son Chase, to go with Dave and Cindy Hayden. Dave is one of our elders, and Cindy is one of our, our staff members, uh, to go on, on, to climb a mountain. To climb a, I think John called it a hill. It's that mountain in the back, and that's not a hill. Uh, and, uh, and so we got up really early in the morning to climb Mount Washington. That's Mount Washington, August 1st, 2005. And uh, it, was, it was a great trip. We drove out there, took a couple hours to get there. Uh, we hiked by this lake, and we're going up the mountain. I mean, there are these steep drop-offs down into these ravines. And I, I, I had not met Dave before, but on, on the hike going up, Dave is pointing out all the places where people have fallen and died. Uh, wasn't really helping me, uh, wasn't helping me, uh, and uh, I was like, wow, I mean, you're, you're kind of just getting as close as you can to the side of the hill, and we made our way to the top, and your heart was kind of pounding uh, on a few of those little stretches, but you got to the top, and it was a gorgeous view. 
It was clear. It was beautiful. You could see forever. We had lunch up there. There's this little metal case with this logbook in it. Pulled the logbook out. I, I, I wrote in there August 1, 2005, best first day of work ever. Uh, and, uh, and then we started to make our way down, which frankly was more frightening than going up. Uh, because we had to repel. I had never repelled before in my life. I saw it on TV. It looked kind of fun. And, uh, and, and yet we came to this cliff, and man, it was a drop-off. And uh, we were given uh, some, uh, like a harness and some rope, and Dave tied the rope uh, around uh, a stone that didn't nearly look big enough to hold us, and, and then told us, walk. the way you repel is you just go out to the edge of the cliff, and you lean back as far as you can, and then you sort of with your feet, you take that first step, you just kind of push yourself off, and you, you catch yourself going down. It looks really easy on TV. <laughs> it's, it's not easy. It is frightening. Um, uh, he told us to take, lean back and, and so he could take a picture of us. This is his wife, Cindy, leaning back over this mass of nothingness down below. Like that helmet would help you if you fell, right? <laughs> um, and there's Cindy. She's leaning back, hands off the rope. I wish I could have found a picture of myself because I was actually leaning forward, holding on, like smiling. Like, I, thought I, I really thought I was leaning back. But I, it, was, it was so scary. It was frightening. In fact, John's son, Drew, who is a big kid, he's courageous and he's brave, he had a little bit of a meltdown on top. Because that first step was so scary. So Cindy went down first, because you know, if Cindy can do it, she's a grade school pastor, Drew should be able to do it, Chase should be able I should be, John, we could all do it. So she paved the way. It was frightening. It was scary as you leaned off and took that first step. Here's the deal. You're stuck. You're stuck in disappointment. You're stuck in the shame, the guilt, the anger, the bitterness. You've got that little bit of hope, and Jesus is saying something to you. And what he's asking you to do is frightening. It's a scary first step, just like it's a scary first step for that guy who'd been on that map for 38 years. He'd never stood up, for all we know. And what Jesus is asking him to do is to take some initiative on his own, to take those first steps on his own, and it had to be frightening. And perhaps he's asking you, if you want to pursue your healing, here's some first steps, and, and, and they could be frightening. It could look like confessing. It could, be look, it could look like asking for help. It could be trusting again. It could be loving again. It may be forgiving again. And it scares you. It's scary. But do you want to get well? Do you really want to get well? And if so, you take that little bit of hope, still believing, no matter how long it's been. Take those scary first steps. And this guy is taking his scary first steps. He picks up his mat and walks, and the crowd has got to be going crazy around him. Jesus slips out of the crowd. He's going, the crowd's going crazy. He's carrying his mat, and he's walking along, and he's just got to be dumbfounded. He's got to have a big smile on his face until he meets who? The Jews, Jewish leaders. 
because they walk up to him and say, hey, you, what are you carrying your mat for? And I'm sure he said, I'm, I'm a heel, I got a miracle. I've been flat on my back for 38 years. I was stuck flat on my back, and, and now I'm, I'm healed. Now, that's great, but you know, you're not supposed to carry a mat on the Sabbath. <laughs> Who told you to do that? Remember the Pharisees have all these rules, and Barbara talked about last week, talked about the throwaway woman. They had 39 categories of things you couldn't do on the Sabbath. Under each category, there were sub-rules and sub-categories. All these things you, you couldn't do. Here, here's your categories. You couldn't plow, you couldn't plant, you couldn't reap, you couldn't gather, you couldn't thresh, you couldn't winnow, you couldn't sort, you couldn't grind, you couldn't sift. You were not allowed to knead bread. You could not cook food. You couldn't shear a sheep. You couldn't scour. You couldn't beat. You were not allowed to, to dye anything. You were not allowed to make two loops. You couldn't weave. You couldn't even separate two threads. You were not allowed to tie a knot. You couldn't untie a knot. You're not allowed to sew. You're not allowed to tear anything. You could not trap an animal, slaughter an animal, skin an animal, or cure its meat. You couldn't sand wood. You couldn't make a knot. You couldn't do any cutting. You couldn't even measure to cut. No writing, no erasing, no building, no demolition, no putting out fires, which could be a bummer. And by the way, no starting fires. No applying the finishing touch and no carrying. If you've ever eaten peanuts and you take the shell off peanuts and you have that skin on the outside the peanut and you, and you blow, you just violated the Sabbath. You just separated. You winnowed. They had all these rules, and instead of celebrating with the guy who just got his healing, instead of congratulating him, what they do is they interrogate him. Uh, who told you you could carry your mat on the Sabbath? We don't care you've been flat on your back since 1970. Congratulations, but you, you're breaking the rules. That's not how we do it around here. You need to behave better. If you've taken that hope and you've taken these very scary first steps, what you need is a healing community around you. You need to have people around you who will speak healing into your life. Not people who are gonna interrogate you until you're not measuring up. And we need to be a healing community. We need to be a church, we need to be a community that when someone is taking those scary first steps, we're not going, hey, you know, that's, that's not okay. We need people to say, way to go. Clean and sober, five days. Keep on, keeping on. Way to go. Yeah, you confess some pretty hard stuff, but I'm determined to walk with you through this and see you to your freedom because we want to be a healing community. Jane Wolf, who leads our recovery ministries, was just at a conference in between speakers, breakout sessions. Here's one of the titles for the breakout sessions to church leaders who are leading recovery. How to convince your board to support, not just allow recovery ministry in your church. How to convince your leaders that it's good to have recovery ministry. I am so grateful for the board members we have, for the elders that we have, for the leaders of this church, for you Choosing to be a church that expresses the grace of Christ and the truth of Christ. To be a healing community for those who are taking some scary first steps. Do you want to get well? Are you stuck? Do you want to get well? Take that grain of hope 
still believing, no matter how long it's been, or how hard it's been, or how difficult and hurt, hurtful the pain has been, that hope, taking the scary first steps that you believe the Holy Spirit's calling you to do, and in a heal, healing community, pursue your wellness. Because, here's the picture of Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the Christ who wants you well. He is the Christ who wants you well. He loves to heal. Do you want to be well? You've been listening to Steve Fowler, lead pastor at Salem Alliance Church. If you've enjoyed this message, we'd love for you to be our guest at our worship service on our main campus at 5th and Market Streets in Northeast Salem. Worship services are Saturday at 5 and 6.30 p.m. and again on Sunday at 8, 9.30 and 11 a.m. If you'd like to receive a free Bible and more information on how to become a Christ follower, feel free to call our office at 503-581-2129. We'd love to know how we can serve you. And once again, that's Salem Alliance Church at 5th and Market Streets in Northeast Salem.